Hello and welcome to Grapevine. This is volume 41, number 10, for week ending Friday the 12th of March 2021. Brought to you by the Great Jarmuth and District Talking Newspaper Association, this week's news includes our weekly COVID roundup, how much fly tipping is costing the area, what pettits have been doing during the lockdown, and a mural painted by the public is coming down. Hi, I'm Graham, your presenter, and joining me is Disney, your newsreader for the week, who also has a piece from perhaps our most well-known local pundit and her look at daytime TV. Plenty of news this week, and so, with the first part of it, here's Disney. Hello everyone, this is Disney, your reader for this very wet and windy week. When lockdown and having to stay indoors has seemed like quite a good idea, and a chance to look at some of that daytime telly I promised you last month. I hope you can't hear the wind outside, because it's still blowing quite a gale out there. At the start of the week, local news was thin on the ground, and Harry and Meghan dominated the national news, so I searched through some of the features articles in the EDP and found something from local author and broadcaster Keith Skipper. I can always relate to his reminiscences because we were actually born in the same year. And incidentally, it had to be Keith Skipper this week because he celebrates his birthday on Thursday, which is the same day as my granddaughter becomes a teenager. Covid rates plummet across Great Yarmouth Borough. Coronavirus rates in Great Yarmouth have fallen by almost two-thirds in a week, but Town Hall has urged residents to continue following lockdown restrictions. Public health figures show that in the seven days leading up to March the 5th, cases per 100,000 people decreased from 78.5 to 27.2. The last time the area's rate dipped under 30 was on September the 22nd, 164 days ago. The numbers illustrate the impact of the latest national lockdown, which came into force on January the 4th. On that day, the infection rate in Great Yarmouth had climbed to a record high of 692 cases per 100,000 people. The most recent data shows that numbers have plummeted across the borough with 10 out of its 13 neighbourhoods reporting less than two cases in a week. The only communities to report infections were Yarmouth Central and Northgate with five cases or a rate of 66.2 per 100,000 people. Yarmouth Parade, with four cases, 41.2 per 100,000 people, and Belton, also having four cases, at 75.9 per 100,000 people. Carl Smith, leader of the Borough Council, said, We're really pleased but we still have to get the message out there to stay at home. We're still in a national lockdown. 
Obviously now, with schools back, it'll take a couple of weeks to see the full effects of that. This isn't over, he said, adding that there would be more peaks and troughs over the coming weeks. Mr Smith also thanked residents who have been following the guidance. Overall, the numbers for Norfolk show a 41% decrease in cases with the rate currently standing at 35.3. Supply means 10,000 fewer COVID jabs given in Norfolk last week. Norfolk and Waveney has seen a drop-off in the number of coronavirus vaccines administered during the latest week-long period. Fresh data released by NHS England shows 419,439 people living in the area had received a first dose of the jab by March the 7th. It means a total of 35,253 initial shots were given out over the preceding seven days compared to 45,454 in the previous week, a decline of 22%. Norfolk and Waveney CCG, which has been leading the rollout, said the recent drop was down to vaccine supply, which is expected to increase significantly from next week. It added that some of the reduced supply had been used for second doses. The rate of vaccination in our area has been moving at a relatively consistent pace in recent weeks, with 44,856 first doses given in the week ending February the 21st and 48,625 a week prior. Norfolk and Waveney does, however, still feature prominently when it comes to the proportion of adults who have received at least one jab, 49.2%. That is the sixth highest rate in the country, dropping one place on the list compared to last week. Suffolk and North East Essex is fourth on the list with 49.7%. Broken down into individual neighbourhoods, Hunstanton's vaccination rate, 64.3%, is the nation's 14th best. Suffolk neighbourhoods, Saxmundham and Felixstowe East, are fourth and seventh on the list, with 66.5 and 66.0% respectively. When it comes to local authorities, Norwich is at the bottom of the pile, with only 33.9% of its residents aged 16 and above having received a Pfizer-BioNTech or Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. By contrast, the figure for North Norfolk is 53.9%. The total number and percentage of people aged 16 plus to have received a vaccine in each of Norfolk and Waveney's district is as follows. Breckland, 55,978, that's 45.4%. Broadland, 55,686, That's 49%. East Norfolk, including Waveney, 
114,511, which is 52.4%. Great Yarmouth, 39,277, which is 43.3%. Kings Lynn and West Norfolk, 64,447, which is 47.7%. North Norfolk, 49,747, which is 53.9%. Norwich, 45,510, which is 33.9%. And South Norfolk, 57,243, which is 47.3%. In the week the vaccination programme began inviting people in their 50s for jabs, almost exactly a quarter of adults, 24.9%, aged 16 to 59 in Norfolk and Waveney, have had a single injection. Patient ambulance delays halve at hospital in second COVID spike. The Norfolk and Norwich Hospital has halved the number of patients waiting more than 30 minutes to be admitted to A&E after arriving in an ambulance this winter compared to last year, figures have revealed. In the seven days up to March the 1st, the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital recorded just four ambulance delays greater than 30 minutes compared to 278 in the same week last year. Over the course of the winter, December the 2nd to March the 1st, during the second wave of the coronavirus pandemic, the hospital recorded 1,460 handovers, delayed more than 30 minutes, down from 3,900 last winter. But while the NNUH has cut figures by half, the James Paget University in Galston has seen a 54% rise in the number of patient handovers taking longer than half an hour. The hospital recorded more ambulance delays between December 1st, 2020 and January 17th, 2021 than the whole of last winter and a total of 1,100. At the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Kings Lynn, 969 patient handovers were delayed, down from 1,003 last winter. Across the county, more than 3,500 patients waited more than 30 minutes before entering hospital after arriving in an ambulance this winter. National guidance says patients arriving at an emergency department by ambulance must be handed over to the care of A&E staff within 15 minutes. Once admitted to A&E, the county's hospitals all reported improved treatment times, with the number of patients being seen within four hours increasing, but still below official targets of 95%, and for all but one, below the national average. Figures for February 2021 show the 76.8% of A&E patients at the JPUH were seen within four hours, up from 68% in January.
the QEH, reported 83.5 of patients were seen within the four-hour window, up from a record low of 67.1% in December, and making it the best performing of the county's hospitals. While at the NNUH, 77.6% of patients were seen within the specified time, 10 percentage points better than pre-COVID levels when the hospital had the lowest rate in the country. The JPUH's most significant operational performances performance report found the coronavirus pandemic has caused significant and sustained changes to the delivery of acute hospital care. It has found the standards for ambulance handovers and time in the department had been significantly impacted by the increase in COVID patients in hospital. Sam Higginson, Chief Executive at the NNUH, said staff have remained focused on improving our emergency department performance, including our ambulance handover times throughout the pandemic. And it's pleasing to see positive change being made and maintained, and I would like to thank them for their continued hard work and commitment to high-quality care. Three arrests after more than 100 people gather in Great Yarmouth. Three men were arrested and others issued with COVID-19 lockdown breach fines or warnings after police shut down what they described as a rave. But the community in Great Yarmouth said Saturday night's event, when more than 100 people gathered along the town's seafront, was not a rave, but a memorial to a teenager who died in a crash. Police said the event, which they described as an unlicensed music event, started in North Drive at about 7pm. Officers attended and brought it to a close at just after 10pm. They said three men were arrested at the scene and a number of fines and warnings were issued in relation to breaches of COVID lockdown rules. Superintendent Nathan Clark from Norfolk Police said, Unfortunately, while the majority of people continue to adhere to lockdown rules at what we know is a critical stage in our journey back to some kind of normality, a group of people this evening had other ideas. We've been here before and we won't tolerate it. Not only is this kind of event illegal, it jeopardises the safety of those who decide to attend and disrupts the lives of those members of the community who live nearby. We will continue to do what we need to do to keep people safe, which includes taking a proportionate level of action in response to any breaches of public health and the law. However, the police's description of the event as a rave angered some people in the town. They said the event was a memorial for 17-year-old Domantus Baxiatis, who died when his motorcycle crashed into a lamppost in North Drive 
in the early hours of Tuesday, March the 2nd. They said the music played included the teenagers' favourite songs while flowers were laid and candles lit in memory of the youngster. Under the current lockdown rules, people are supposed to stay at home except for essential trips to get food and medicine or for exercise. But people on Facebook highlighted how some of the young people at the event will be together in school classrooms from Monday. One person said, I know nothing of this family, but these young adults will be spending minimum six hours a day in classes from Monday. Is 36 hours going to make a difference here? They need this time. But others said the time for a memorial was after the pandemic had passed. Shop worker died from natural causes, inquest rules. An inquest has ruled that a Norfolk woman died of natural causes. Julie Jackman from Bradwell was diagnosed with mesothelioma in November 2018 after experiencing shortness of breath. She died at home on February the 22nd this year. The inquest in Norwich on Thursday heard Mrs Jackman and her husband Terence spoke to Rosemary Giles from Irwin Mitchell about how she may have come into contact with asbestos, which is a common cause of mesothelioma. Mrs Jackman worked at a number of businesses in Great Yarmouth from the age of 15, predominantly as a machinist in old factory buildings. The solicitor said Mrs Jackman told her asbestos was present but was unable to give specific details. The 63-year-old's medical cause of death was given as mesothelioma, plural. Jacqueline Lake, senior coroner for Norfolk, concluded the shop worker died of natural causes as the evidence did not reveal she came into contact with asbestos during her working life. The coroner offered her sympathy to Mrs Jackman's family. More news shortly, but first, Desney has the article she mentioned. Keith Skipper, which he's called My Family of Ten Would Have Made Light Work of Lockdown in the 1950s. I felt no need of a road map to get me out of trouble as an emerging Norfolk nuisance during an era of austerity, fresh air and freedom. It was over the fields and as far away as possible from instant punishment for the odd adventurous streak designed to brighten up the character-building 1950s. 
A fair number of that generation, for whom ration books and hand-me-down clothes came well before rock and roll and flower power, can be forgiven for making comparisons between a rigid post-war examination and current marathon of recovery facing youngsters trapped in lockdown. With speculating time on my hands, I can't help wondering how families might have coped with the coronavirus pandemic had it been unleashed 70 or so years ago. My own rural household experiences from that era can provide a few useful pointers. While a brood of 10 children plus parents squeezed into a farm cottage was hardly representative of mid-Norfolk village existence in the 1950s, big families were by no means uncommon. There were two or three others of similar size in our parish alone. Ours came roughly in three instalments, with me loitering somewhere on middle ground, looking up to the biggins and down on the little uns, needing a bottle feed and a rocking to sleep, and volunteering for such tender chores nurtured much-needed snatches of kitchen peace. Homeschooling benefited considerably, as big sisters helped teach me to read and write before life in a proper classroom, and how to add up or take away by playing shops with cardboard boxes donated by delivery men. Big brothers joined in building farmyard worlds out of the toy box they'd created possibly out of fast-evaporating hopes I might join them and father as a proud son of the Norfolk soil. Younger siblings giggled or dozed through my range of silly stories or nearly naughty rhymes. Sharing shone through most sessions, even when sharper, competitive edges came into play for I Spy, Ludo, Snap, Bagatelle, Blow Football, Hunt the Thimble and Who Can Keep a Straight Face Longest When Uncle Willie Slurps His Sunday Tea? Calling the midwife, district nurse or doctor meant regular trips to the big red phone box outside our village shop and post office. Mini epidemics of measles, mumps, scarlet fever and whooping cough often prompted instant generosity in passing on to other family members. With the nip nurse, dentist and school medical teams loyal visitors to our classrooms, we soon got used to funny smelling stuff in our hair, opening wide to expose neglected teeth and coughing loudly for the serious man with a very cold stethoscope. Another important chap in a white coat denied he'd come to take me away just before the 11 plus exam. He asked if I knew what the three R's were. I regret to this day not proffering an answer suggested to me by a puckish old boy on the farm. Ricketts, ringworm and rigor mortis. Yes, it was a Spartan time, going much of the time without electricity, bathroom or indoor toilet, 
toasting cheese on a fork, or nursing the latest infant in front of a blazing log fire became winter luxuries to warm you on the way to a chilly bedroom. Yes, tempers flared, factions formed, blame mounted, tears flowed, and promised treats got lost in a domestic maelstrom. There was neither time nor space for full and fair investigations into verbal and physical jousts. Be quiet and take your medicine. Yes, tackling grammar school homework next to a hissing tilly lamp while bedtime ablutions for agitated youngsters multiplied and Dad peeled spuds for tomorrow on the same table did make it hard to get to grips with Archimedes and Pythagoras. But for all that, our packed indoors community found enough common purpose and survival spirit to come through without paying heed to social distancing, the rule of six, or any other restrictions built on boring cliches like light at the end of the tunnel and common sense of the great British public. We fought together. That didn't stop me seeking special Norfolk places close to home where I could find good reason to work out for myself what living here, staying here and protecting here really meant. Honestly, these high ideals were just as important to me as avoiding a ding of the lug, being banished to bed early or having a meagre sweet ration cut off completely just because I wanted to develop a proper sense of humour. I'm sure a lot of us can relate to a lot of that.
Leroy Anderson's typewriter, appropriate, I think, as Keith Skipper has certainly sat in front of one of those for many hours, and it was also prime light programme fare from the days of yore. Or should that be the days of Mr Skipper? OK, time for some more news. The 100k cost of clearing up fly-tipping in Norfolk. Dead animals, washing machines and tyres were among the things being fly-tipped in Norfolk last year, figures reveal. The latest data from DEFRA shows 10,353 fly-tipping incidents occurred in Norfolk and Waveney between 2019 and 2020, an average of 28 per day. The figure is down by 8% from 11,286 from the previous year and 30% from 14,768 from 10 years ago. Most of the incidents include dumping rubbish on council land, household waste and black bin bags. Although fly-tipping incidents were lower in every district than the year before, Breckland District Council dished out 36 fixed penalty notices, FPNs, to people found to be illegally ditching waste. This was more than double the amount of FPNs given out by any other Norfolk Council. Gordon Bambridge, Executive Member for Environmental and Public Protection at the Council, said how important it is to ensure serial fly-tippers are punished. He said, We have been making concerted efforts to both educate local residents whilst taking enforcement action to ensure serial fly-tippers are punished. Our enforcement team work incredibly hard not only to bring fly-tippers to justice, but repeatedly look at re-education and prevention, which all play a major contribution in reducing fly-tipping. We are incredibly proud to see the reduction in fly-tipping. However, we know more can be done and we are investing in more resources to see that happen. Fly-tippers in Norfolk have been fined more than £35,000 since 2012, with Great Yarmouth being responsible for £22,804 of that. Wow, that's quite a big proportion in our area, isn't it? Group of students isolating after Covid case on their first day back. A group of students at a coastal academy are self-isolating until March the 18th after one of their peers tested positive for Covid on the first day back. A spokesman for Ormiston Venture Academy in Galston said the small number of Year 8 students affected would continue their studies until March the 18th via remote learning. They said the positive test result picked up on March the 8th was identified through lateral flow testing, one of many robust precautions put in place to ensure staff and students are kept as safe as possible. They added, 
As a result of stringent safety measures in place, the Academy is safe to reopen to all other students. We would like to thank parents and carers for their ongoing support and understanding at this time. Seafront businesses fear ruin if dunes continue to overrun the beach. Businesses stationed along a quiet seafront stretch in Great Yarmouth say more must be done to prevent the beach being overrun by marram grass. The owners of the Beach Hut and Munch's Cafe on North Drive say their eateries offer a much-needed counterbalance to the amusement-packed strip between Wellington and Britannia Pier. Instead, their major draw is the view. But since 2019, when the council stopped mechanically cleaning North Beach, owners say the dunes have grown unchecked with a green film supplanting the formerly pristine sand on the pathways between the cafe and the sea. Sandy Menaces, 52, who bought the beach hut with her partner Bertie four years ago, said her concern is that North Beach businesses are playing second fiddle to the ones further south. She said the council said the beach along by Marine Parade will continue to be mechanically cleaned. So why can't ours be? We'll never rename the beach hut the dune hut, which we would have to do in a couple of years at this rate. We only need it cleaned about twice a season to stop the spread of the dunes, but the council can't even give us that. When they used to rake it, the place would look gorgeous. Meanwhile, Mark Allen, 62, has run Munch's Cafe for almost nine years. He dubbed it ludicrous that the council is leaving his end of the beach to its own devices. But according to Great Yarmouth Borough Council, they stopped raking it at the request of Natural England in a bid to conserve the natural environment. They said the beach was never raked to stop dune formation, but to keep the area clean of litter, which is now done manually at North Beach. They said it is high footfall which tramples the beach flat and suppresses vegetation growth rather than the raking and that the cafe's £2.7 million waterways restoration and nearby car parks will do the job in keeping visitor numbers buoyant moving forward. In fact, the council said there was evidence that raking actually helped the grass colonise new areas by distributing it. Mr Menezes, however, said she didn't trust footfall alone to deal with the problem. She said, that's nonsense. We had really high visitor numbers here last year and the year before, but the grass is still growing. It's no coincidence it started growing when the raking stopped. Unsafe mural being removed from the train station. A colourful mural tracing a town's proud transport history is being removed. 
some 28 panels that have been brightening the approach to Great Yarmouth's Vauxhall Station and the town's Asda supermarket, are being taken down after eight years of exposure to the elements. Painted by the community and led by artist Matthew Harrison, the panels recreated Braden Water's Sunset Palette as part of a project around the renovations of Vauxhall Bridge. However, the panels are now said to be loose and dilapidated, with high winds over the winter making them unsafe. Train operator Greater Anglia, together with the Wherry Line Community Rail Partnership, is currently working to remove the panels and install new fencing. Later this year, a public competition will be held to recreate new images for public display, reflecting the railway history of the town. The painted boards being removed will be kept on site for a few weeks, allowing anyone that originally contributed to the mural and would like to keep a panel to arrange collection. Community Rail Development Officer Martin Halliday said, when first installed, the mural was a welcome addition to the local landscape. Unfortunately, over the past few months, the wooden structure has deteriorated rapidly and is therefore being removed and replaced with new fencing. The Wherry Lines Community Rail Partnership is planning to hold a public competition to create new artwork reflecting Great Yarmouth's illustrious railway history later this year, with winning entries subsequently displayed around the wider station site. Greater Anglia's Area Customer Services Manager, James Reeve, said, It's sad to see the mural go, but after almost 10 years in situ, it had become damaged and insecure, so we needed to take action to ensure it could not become a potential danger to the nearby road. It is important that we keep our stations and their environs in a good state of repair, to ensure that they're safe and meet the high standards expected by those who use them. Action to ensure it could not become a potential danger to the nearby road is needed. New theming layout and crazy ranger ready for Pettit's reopening. A wholesale theatre revamp New bridges wide enough for duck feeding and a crazy roaming entertainer are just some of the developments Pettit's Adventure Park is itching to reveal. The Reedham-based amusement site near Great Yarmouth is scheduled to reopen on April the 12th, in line with government guidance after a drawn-out closure which made 2020 almost unbearable for owner Michael Abbott. But the time has allowed for a raft of improvements, with Mr Abbott and site manager Sue McElroy barely able to contain their excitement about welcoming back visitors. He said, this year we decided to focus on accessibility as well as a bit of a revamp. It was important for us 
that when we were allowed to open, everyone could make it round easily. But children-orientated additions, while on a smaller scale to previous years, are still worth getting excited about. According to Mr Abbott, the new temple-themed theatre is looking great, while it's hoped the crazy ranger persona of the new entertainer will prove a hit. He added that the park's mascot, Maxi Mouse, had even received its own makeover and that existing attractions had been livened up with new life-size animal statues. But for Mr Abbott and his team, the most important element of the refurb is the transition from gravel to tarmac pathways, more signage and the widening of bridges. They're now three metres wide, which means people can watch the animals and feed the ducks passing underneath uninterrupted. He said, since we took over Pettits in 2017, we've been meaning to complete the park's transition to a fully accessible one. Now, people with buggies, wheelchairs and mobility students will be able to get round easily. I know the children won't get as excited about this as the parents and grandparents will, but it's important that we make the place easy to navigate for the families who visit. The April the 12th opening date, however, only applies to outdoor attractions. Mr Abbott explained indoor ones would have to wait a further five weeks before they're back up and running. Nevertheless, he said he was fortunate to be able to open at all on April the 12th. If not, he added, things could have been disastrous. Tickets for the reopening go live on Friday and you can purchase them on their website. New Flood Alliance issues first warning of heavy rainfall. The chairman of a new alliance tasked with fighting flooding across the region warned people to be mindful of heavy rainfall during the past week. Following the disastrous floods that hit the county over the Christmas period, the Norfolk Strategic Flooding Alliance was formed. The Alliance will reshape the way the county prepares itself for future instances of flooding and look to make improvements to infrastructure to limit the impact it has on communities. And with a yellow warning in place for heavy rainfall this week on Wednesday and Thursday, the 10th and 11th, Lord Richard Dannant, the Alliance's chairman, urged people to be on alert and plan their actions accordingly. He said on Monday, the Meteorological Office has issued a yellow weather warning for high winds effective from 9pm on Wednesday evening. With this weather front, we might expect that, that more heavy rainfall, high winds and potential flooding. I would therefore expect that the emergency services are monitoring the conditions and remain prepared to respond to whatever might happen over the next few days, 
but everybody needs to know how to get the help they might need. The new alliance consists of a considerable number of organisations who will each hone their various expertise to best address the issues going forward. This includes representatives, county, district and parish councils, along with the Environment Agency and Anglian Water. Its first meeting was chaired by Lord Dannett on Thursday, February the 11th. He added, over the coming months, we will be looking at the plans across the county to improve our response to inland and coastal floods, which, with climate change, will become more frequent in the years ahead. Much needs to be done to meet the expectation of people across Norfolk to ensure that our homes and our livelihoods are safe from the threat of flooding and that the necessary statutory agencies have simple, clear and effective plans in place that can be easily communicated and understood. And Lord Dannant encouraged anybody who wishes to express views or suggestions on the region's flood response to contact their local council, which will feed directly into the Alliance. The final part of the news in just a nonce, after Desney talks about daytime television. Oh, look out. Here comes a professional. Hello and welcome to Friday on BBC One. It's six o'clock and time for breakfast. Daytime television. And this is the strangest year of our lives, probably. We've watched more TV than ever before. So who's watched more daytime television than they ever knew existed? Now that there's so much streaming, Netflix, Red Button, iPlayer, Amazon Prime, so bewildering, you really can watch virtually anything you want to watch at any time of the day. But daytime television still has that kind of stigma attached to it somehow. It's for students or shift workers or the elderly, that great bunch of people that probably most of us are included in. I think more people have watched daytime television in the last year, obviously because of the lockdown. Not so much to do, can't go out for a walk except your one hour a day exercise, stick the telly on. People will have admitted to watching morning television, breakfast television on BBC or Good Morning Britain on ITV before they go off to work. But now people are watching the whole lot, sometimes even afterwards. Lorraine, this morning with Phil and Holly. Homes under the hammer. Bargain hunt. It's not just the prerogative of students and the elderly anymore. Anyone can watch it any time. And they tend to. They tend to watch the things that this time last year people either had never heard of 
or wouldn't admit to it anyway. Sometimes they might sit down and watch the news if they happen to be at home at lunchtime. Now, what's on before that and what's after that? They know that too. Bargain hunt. Doctors. Is that the only daytime soap? soap? Probably. Or loose women. And then Judge Window and or David Dickinson. They all have their turns. The big new programme of the afternoon in the first lockdown was the daily Covid update. Now it's probably once or twice a week or when something different happens that uh, Boris or Matt Hancock want to tell us all about. It did get a bit much when it was on every day, not because we didn't want to keep up to date with the Covid news. What people didn't like most of all were the questions afterwards. They weren't the questions we wanted to ask. They were just the questions that the press seemed to be trying to get people to say things that they couldn't back up, just to make headlines. Anyway, some of the most popular things in the afternoons seem to be the quiz programmes. Students have always been said to love those. The elderly think they keep the brain sharpened by listening. And they can be repeated and repeated and repeated without any trouble. They don't have to be consecutive necessarily. Do they really keep our brain sharp? Well, it's fun anyway. Some of them, you know, have been recorded some time ago because there's just no social distancing. It's funny, isn't it? You can tell if they're new or fairly new because there's no contact between the host and the contestants. No handshakes or bear hugs when they win a fortune. And if they are like that, then you know they're old and you've probably seen them before. But they are still good fun to watch. Tipping Point and The Chase have been on every weekday right through both lockdowns, as far as I can tell. Pointless as well, although Pointless has had to be missed sometimes because of the briefings. Sometimes it's gone on to BBC Two, but I don't think they started that as a regular thing at the beginning. There have been some that have come and gone. Lingo, winning combinations, supermarket sweep. We've had those too. BBC One has got another one starting again next week, which has been on before. Uh, impossible. I quite like that one. Maybe that's just an excuse for keeping my brain sharp. Anyway, you can be assured that watching daytime TV is now allowed because everyone does it. And it's not just the prerogative of students, shift workers, and us, the elderly. Well, those of you who enjoy daytime telly, what have recognised the themes at the beginning and end of that piece. I will, however, leave you guessing. 
if you're not sure. Something to mull over for the weekend. Right, we're on the home straight with the last part of the news. Street drinking fears over seafront kiosks bid to sell booze. A seafront newsagent's application to sell alcohol is drawing concerns about street drinking. The Times newsagent on the corner of the new Beach Hotel on Great Yarmouth's Golden Mile is asking for a licence to sell alcohol for consumption off the premises from 8am to 11pm seven days a week. Drawings submitted in support of the bid show beer and spirits located behind the counter. However, Tony Wright, a borough councillor whose ward includes the kiosk, has objected, saying it could lead to a public nuisance, given the proliferation of benches nearby. He said he could only assume that anything purchased was for immediate consumption and did not want to see the kinds of gatherings that occurred around the Weatherspoons pub and St George's Park at the other end of Regent Road. Michael Cole of Joyland also expressed his opposition given the family-focused nature of the area around Britannia Pier. The application will be decided at a virtual meeting of the Borough Council's Licensing Committee on Tuesday, March the 16th at 9.30am. Vigilant boat firm checking postcodes to weed out non-local customers. As open-top dayboat hire resumes on the broads, one company has moved to reassure the public there will be no influx of tourists on its watch. The Prime Minister's lockdown roadmap said dayboat hire for a local single household or bubble could resume on March the 8th with this being extended to six people or two households from March the 29th. However, as fears grow over a potential visitor storm, Herbert Woods in Potter Hyam, one of the Broad's businesses to take up the offer, stressed this would not be the case. Sales manager James Brooks said, I can understand why people are worried, but Herbert Woods is simply following the guidance from the government and the Broad's authority on this. We had a BA Ranger and member of Broadsbeat visit us on Monday to ensure we were complying with all regulations and they believed we were. Fellow boatyard owner George Elliott, who is keeping his business closed, said his worry lay in difficulties enforcing the keep local rule. He said it made sense for all boatyards to hold off hiring out anything until March the 29th when the guidance became more clear. A parish councillor who wanted to remain anonymous said he feared people might try to get around the local rule and that boating companies would have little incentive to prevent this.
But Mr Brooks said the company had a robust scheme for flagging outsiders, whereby customers provided contact numbers, addresses and postcodes so that non-local bookings can be denied. He added that Herbert Woods had a stellar reputation in the broads and would not jeopardise that. The fact there had not been a single soul at the ticket box in the last two days showed there was little demand for this activity at the moment anyway, he explained. Schools went back on Monday and renters are only limited to a few hours of travel so they can't get very far. Norfolk Constabulary confirmed it would be conducting patrols to enforce restrictions in the area with the Broads Beat team out on the water most days. A spokesperson for North Norfolk District Council said it was seeking further guidance from the BA and Trading Standards to establish the facts around recreational boat hire. Once clarified, it said, COVID support officers would be visiting boat yards to offer advice. Great Yarmouth gets away lightly as 60 mile per hour winds batter Norfolk. More than a thousand homes in Norfolk were left without power as the county was hit by winds of up to 60 miles an hour. The blustery weather on Wednesday night and Thursday morning amid a wet office yellow weather warning has caused problems with overhead electricity equipment and drivers who do need to head out amid coronavirus lockdown restrictions were being urged to take extra care. As of 9am on Thursday, winds had been recorded at speeds of 60 miles per hour at Marham and Weybourne and at 55 miles per hour at Norwich Airport. Homes in areas such as Thetford, Deerham, Swaffham, Hunstanton, Blakeney, Hingham, Aylsham were among hundreds left without power. Engineers from UK Power Networks were out since the early hours of Thursday morning trying to fix the issues and some homes had had power restored by Thursday noon but others were told they might not have their electricity restored until later in the day. Norfolk County Council urged people to take extra caution and report any problems on the roads. There were many fallen trees in the north of the county and warnings of flooded roads and footpaths. Meanwhile, a long-standing flood warning and two flood alerts remain in place for parts of Norfolk. Dan Holly from WeatherQuest said that the highest wind speeds recorded in Norfolk as of 9am today were in Weybourne and Marham. He said winds had reached 60 miles per hour there while they had been registered at 59 miles per hour in Tibbenham and 55 miles per hour at Norwich Airport. Police said that as of 9am Thursday they had received 33 calls relating to highway obstructions since midnight. Meanwhile, East Midlands railway trains, which run between Norwich and Liverpool, were being disrupted because of a broken down train at Maney between Ely and Peterborough. The Met Office's yellow warning of wind, which covers most of the country, was in place 
until 3pm on Thursday, March the 11th. Up to a fifth of waste in Norfolk's recycling bins ends up being burned. Up to a fifth of waste people in Norfolk put in their recycling bins ends up being burned, figures have revealed. Council bosses say between 15% and 20% of items put in doorstep recycling bins is contaminated, which means it cannot be recycled. Instead, it is taken to Lincolnshire, where it is mixed with other materials to form fuel for kilns which make cement. The Norfolk Waste Partnership, through which Norfolk's county, district, borough and city councils work together to improve waste and recycling, said people putting dirty nappies in recycling bins was a particular problem. In a statement, the partnership said approximately 15% to 20% of what Norfolk residents put into their recycling bins is not material that we can take for recycling. Common contaminants are black bags of general waste, dirty nappies, textiles and plastics such as toys. Not only is this a waste which then needs to be disposed of separately, but some items, such as nappies, can contaminate the recyclable materials as well. The waste is collected from the materials recycling facility in Cossie and delivered to Lincolnshire where it is shredded and blended with other grades of waste material, including carpets. Then it is burned as fuel for cement kilns around the Lincolnshire area. At a meeting of Norfolk County Council's Cabinet on Monday, Green City Councillor Paul Neal asked whether rigid plastics such as garden furniture and children's toys were recycled. Andy Grant cabinet member for environment at the council which stopped collecting plastics at its recycling centres five years ago confirmed rigid plastics were sent to energy from waste plants. Mr Neal said I was relieved to hear that plastic collected from blue bins at the curbside is recycled as we all expect it to be. However I was shocked and disappointed to hear rigid plastics such as in garden furniture or a children's toy, aren't recycled, but incinerated. If we are to play our part in reaching climate neutrality by 2030, as the council has said it wants to do, Norfolk needs to do better. The government has said it will introduce new taxes to reduce unrecyclable plastic entering the waste stream. Holiday Park offering free breaks for Royal Navy members. Members of the Royal Navy and their families will have the chance to enjoy a free break on the coast this year. Vauxhall Holiday Park in Great Yarmouth will provide free accommodation to service personnel after owner Park Dean Resorts completed a partnership with the Royal Navy and Royal Marines charity RNRMC. The company will offer up to 145 holiday breaks between April and November this year at nine of its parks, including Vauxhall. Admiral Tony Radikin, CBADC First Sea Lord and Chief of Naval Group, said, 
our people and their families often make significant sacrifices in the service of our country. And it's fantastic we can recognise this by awarding holidays that help families reconnect and relax together. Steve Richards, Park Dean Chief Executive, said it was an honour to be able to give back to service personnel and their families through the partnership with the RNRMC. We look forward to welcoming them to Vauxhall this year, he added. I feel violated. Burglar stood over woman as she slept in chair. A woman who learned to talk again after being left in a coma for three months following a car crash was burgled as she slept in a lounge chair, a court has heard. Paul Gilbert, 33, carried out a spate of burglaries in the Great Yarmouth area in late 2019 and last summer. Norwich Crown Court heard the victim of a burglary in Wherry Way, Great Yarmouth, had been asleep in her chair in the lounge when Gilbert struck on August the 13th last year. Oliver Haswell, prosecuting, said bank cards and cash were among the items stolen. He said Gilbert had stood over the victim to steal items from her handbag as she slept in her chair. A victim statement read out in court by Mr Haswell described how the woman had speech problems following a crash in 1969, after which she spent three months in a coma. The woman, who had been asleep in her chair, said she felt sick and violated following the burglary. But just a few days later, Gilbert burgled the property of a vulnerable victim in St Peter's Plain. The victim in that burglary on August the 26th last year was a wheelchair user and awoke to find Gilbert in her home with a torch after her cat alerted her. The victim said the burglary had tarnished my security and how I feel at home. She said she no longer felt safe in her own home and added that her cat had also suffered. Gilbert of Victoria Road, Yarmouth, appeared in court on Tuesday, March the 9th, to be sentenced after having previously admitted two burglaries in the Yarmouth area in November 2019. He also pleaded guilty to fraud in March last year, as well as three counts of burglary within days of each other in August last year. Jailing Gilbert for a total of three years, Judge Anthony Bate said the victims had suffered in their own homes as a result of what he had done. Danielle O'Donovan, mitigating, said there had been a significant gap in Gilbert's offending, with the last offences before these matters being nine years ago. She said he was focusing on his future and parenting, as he had a baby boy he had not been able to see while he was in custody. Ticket prices and opening times revealed for Yarmouth Eye. More details have emerged about a giant passenger wheel heading to Great Yarmouth. According to planning documents submitted to Great Yarmouth Borough Council, the 50 metre tall attraction will make the town its home for nine months from April to November. Its operators are bidding for permission 
to put it on the lawned area outside the Sea Life Centre on Marine Parade from March the 14th, with construction taking six days. However, under current restrictions and with planners yet to issue a decision, the earliest it could open is understood to be on April the 12th in line with the government's lockdown exit roadmap. A design and access statement submitted as part of the application outlines how it would operate. Under the plans, the wheel will be open from 10am to 10pm, seven days a week, closing at 7pm during quieter periods. Riders can expect a minimum experience of eight minutes, comprising four revolutions at off-peak times and two during peak periods. The wheel has 36 enclosed gondolas and at full capacity can take 216 people. One of the pods has wheelchair access with room for two carers and audio description is available on request. On a clear day, passengers will be able to enjoy 360 degree view of the surrounding area up to 10 miles away. Ticket prices are given as adult £8, seniors and children under 1.4 metres £6, a family of four that's two standard and two under 1.4 metres or one standard and three under 1.4 metres for £22. It adds the ticket prices may be subject to variation by agreement. Carl Smith, the council leader, said the Ferris wheel would enhance the seafront's overall offer in the 2021 season boost footfall and add to the profile and vitality of the resort. He added, it will also be Covid safe, fun for visitors and residents alike, offering fabulous views across the coastline and historic skyline out to the broads. Slightly taller than the revolving tower, which famously stood on the seafront until the war, the wheel will be visible from the Acle Strait and will form a spectacular backdrop, particularly when illuminated in the evenings. The proposal does not include the playing of any music or the use of a PA system, with the lighting described as functional and not flashing. just about it from this edition of Grapevine. The recording is copyright 2021 of the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. The news content is adapted mainly from the publications of Archant Limited and is used with their consent. However, the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association accept responsibility for editorial decisions made for this recording. Next week's newsreader will be Andrew, and we hope that we can look forward to welcoming you once again for much more of your local news. In the meantime, from all at Grapevine, we hope that you keep well and safe and stay out of the wind. Bye for now. Bye.